race regardless of the length and let us run well. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 139. Uh, I keep telling you, like, this is one of my favorite psalms, and I guess they all are because there's 150 of them, and me and the other pastors got to pick which ones we're going to talk about. But this is, again, one of my very favorites. We're towards the end of this series. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, and because it's such a long psalm, and then get to verses 23 through 24 as well. I'm going to read it to us. It's found in your bulletin. David, another psalm of David, writes this, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall uphold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day. For darkness is as light with you, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very, very well. Then verse 23, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." This is the word of the Lord. When I was in my 30s, I had this year or two where I was getting kind of frustrated because as I was living in my present reality, I had a great ministry and, and a great wife and three kids and everything was fine family-wise. But in terms of my calling, I felt this frustration. Again, great church, the lovely people, great location. It was in Ohio. And, but I just had this sense of like, uneasiness, like I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not yet using the gifts the way I'm supposed to. And I just had this frustration. And as I looked to the future, kind of this fog of like, what am I supposed to do? It just seems so unclear. Now, looking back in terms of history, it was clear that the Lord was sort of frustrating me in some way to get me to move out by faith and be thinking about what's next, which eventually led me and Becky to move here to plant the church. But in the moment, it was so frustrating and I can remember trying to share what was going on in my heart and my life with my dear wife, Becky. And I kept saying, you know, I'm so frustrated. I don't know what the future holds. And I'm, I don't think I'm doing yet what I'm called to do and so forth. And she was trying to understand and she would ask and probe with a lot of questions. But ultimately, I just didn't feel like she was getting where I was coming from. And it was frustrating. And I fell into this sort of emotional funk where I just felt like nobody knows me, you know. <laughs> nobody understands, you know. I am alone in the universe. And my feelings were very real, and perhaps you felt this way before too. And they're valid feelings, but it's a, the problem with those feelings were is they were not based on truth. God's given us these emotions. They're gifts from him. Uh, God is not opposed to emotion. They literally are, are how he's wired us and created us. 
And yet, if we're not careful, our emotions can lead us to places where we start trusting what we feel versus what we know to be true. Even though I was feeling alone in the universe as if nobody knows me, nobody understands me, nobody gets me, it couldn't have been further from the truth from what David is telling us this morning. I want us to see uh, three things as we look at this psalm, Psalm 139. We're going to look at this. Our Father knows everything, verses 1 through 6. Our Father is everywhere, verses 7 through 12. And our Father is all-powerful, verses 13 through 16. He's every, he knows everything, he's everywhere, and he's all-powerful. And David begins this psalm in the first couple verses by saying, you have searched me and know me, right? And then he lists all these uh, descriptions of what that means. And then he closes the psalm saying the same thing from a different perspective. He asks God to search him and to know him in order that God may show him what is grievous in him and that he may walk in the way everlasting. First, our Father knows everything, verses 1 through 6. Father knows everything. God knows everything about everything and everyone always God knows the past. God knows the present. God knows the future. Theologians call this omniscience in some other terminology, but basically he has omniscience. He knows everything, right? If you've read any theology, you know that's true. If you've read the Bible, you know this is what the Bible says. God knows everything. That's difficult to comprehend, but that is what the Bible teaches. Now, David isn't approaching this, though, from a highly theological level so much as pastoral and personal very personal. He's using the first person. He's talking about himself and how that relates. This reality of God's omniscient relates to him and his life. He says this, you have searched me and you know me. Omniscience applied to me. You know when I sit down. You know when I get up. You know my thoughts from afar, David says. You're acquainted with all my ways. You know exactly what I am thinking, even before a word is on my tongue, David writes, you know it. So, what does that mean? Who cares? Well, what does that mean? So what? It means this, God is omniscient, so there is someone who truly knows and understands me. Always. Because God is omniscient, what David is saying, you know, normally we live up here when, I talk, when we're talking about omniscience, but David is talking about himself personally. Therefore, no matter what you're facing, God understands you and knows you. No matter how you may feel, like perhaps I did in that moment, it's not a truth that's real. Your feelings are, are, are lying to you in this, in this sense because you're never actually without someone knowing you profoundly and intimately because of God's care and his omniscience. And then David turns to praise in verse 6 when he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's amazing to me. He knows when you sit down or get up. He knows if you go for a walk. He knows if you're in and out. He knows if you're at work. He knows if you're at the gym. And, And it's not like this creepy, like he's following you and checking up on you. He's with you. Notice David's perspective. It's it's positive. It's fatherly love. It's not like God is angry at me and tracking me down. No, God is with me, even holding me. Our Father knows everything. Therefore, you're actually never alone. You're actually never without someone understanding you and caring. 
Next, our fathers everywhere, verses 7 through 12. You and I are limited by time and space, right? And at times, because of technology, we can sort of overcome that. We can Skype in somewhere and our face, you know, our appearance can show up somewhere and we can have this quasi-real experience where we're, we're talking to someone and we actually see their image over a screen, but we're not physically present there with them. But God, he is spirit, the Bible says, and he is everywhere at all places at all times. David asked, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And that literally means the Imago Dei, the face of God. When it says presence, it means where can I flee from your face? Your face is always there. Again, not from a creepy, track you down, judgmental standpoint. This is the face of a father that loves you. Many of you have had a difficult relationship with your father. You need to put this image out of your mind and, and realize this is the father that loves you, that's committed to you, and you can't flee from his face, nor would you ever want to, David would say. He says this, if I go to heaven, to the north, you're there. If I go to Sheol, hell, the south, <laughs> poor south, always picked on, you know, like that. so you're there. If I go to the wings of the morning, where the sun rises, the east, you're there. And if I live in the uttermost part of the sea, and for Israel, that was to the west, you're there. You can't escape God's face, his presence, the Imago Dei, the image of God. He's everywhere. You, you would not want to flee his presence, and his presence is with you in every direction. And then David says, even the darkness is as a light to him. If I were to go to the darkest place on earth or the darkest place in the universe, outer space itself, it would be like no the noonday sun to you, O Lord, he says. There's no way to flee your presence. So what? Before, God is omniscient, so you're never without someone understanding you. God is omnipresent, so you're never without someone actually in your presence. God is with you at all times. His fatherly care, and again, this is from the perspective of a father who loves his son and is committed completely to his child. He says, you hem me in behind and before, and that sounds negative, but that's not what this means. You put your hand on me. Again, that could have negative connotations. Look at it. He says, this knowledge is too wonderful to me. This is not negative. He's saying, you embrace me. You hold me. You're with me. And that is true for the believer, for the child of God. There is no place in the earth, even the universe, that you're beyond the providence and care of God and his presence with you. He's with us all the time. You're never alone. There's no place you can be outside of his care for you. I'm a relatively good father. I want to believe that. And one of the great things about being a father is cell phones, actually. This is where I'm going with this. My own mom parented me before this incredible invention. And she would curse me. And here's what I mean. You probably received the same curse, many of you. When you're a teenager, I was 16 roughly, and I would have a, you know, I was an only child and a bit spoiled, but like I, I, I had a curfew, but it was a little, there was a little grace there within a few minutes. But then what would happen is I would, uh, 
I would come home late, of course, as most people would. But like one time I came in, I can remember like it was a good 45 minutes to an hour late. And I walk in the door, just very laid back, very jovial, like no big deal. I just come in very casually into the living room into the Imago presence of my parents. And my mom is crying her eyes out. And I'm like, what is your problem? She's like, where have you been? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, got, I forgot, I lost track of time. And she's like, you're 45 minutes late. And I'm like, would you relax? Where's your face? You know? Right. <laughs> she then turns to me, and this is where the curse begins, and she points at me with her finger and says, I hope to God, you know, here comes the curse, that if you have children, that they stay out really late and they don't call and they don't come home on time and that you experience everything you've placed on me today. The curse, right? Have you received the curse? Now, because of mobile phones, the curse is a lot less fallen on me. And so I have, you know, like you, but uh, uh, yes, what I've realized is this. With my own children, I don't just sit casually by if they're late. In fact, I can't go to sleep until all the chickens are at home and in their, their pen. Like I'm constantly waking up and I can't get fully asleep until I know and I hear the garage door and they're home, Right? I would love physically to be able to be in my boy's presence at all times. I can't. They're very grateful that I cannot, right? <laughs> but here's good news. Our father, and you may not think you want his presence at all times, particularly uh, when we're fleeing him, and we all do, but he's always with us. His presence is always, always with us, and he loves us. Next, I want us to see that our Father is all-powerful, verses 13 through 16. Now, these verses in this passage right here are foundational for those of us who believe biblically, and I do, that life begins with conception, and that all life, all human life, has dignity and value and meaning and purpose because we are created in the image of God. He is the author of life, He's the creator of life, and we see here in this passage the beauty and the poetry, and he's not speaking from a scientific, you know, these are ancient people. He's speaking from an ancient culture, but the mystery of human, uh, of, of the human creation. And it is a mystery. It's a gift. It's beautiful. If you've ever been at a birth of a child, and, and perhaps you have, it's, it's a glorious miracle to be there, to see a human being in its first breath. And what David says here is this, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is om, he's omni, omniscient, omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. He's so powerful that he's the author and the creator of life. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Think about how mysterious the development of a human being in the womb was in this culture. No ultrasounds, of course, and, and because of death, they would often see uh, what had happened and so forth, but no, nothing, this was such a mystery, the things that were going on inside. Now, because of technology, we can peer into the mystery. We can even see the face of a child long before it's delivered. Beautiful. But he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret because he's the author of life. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But here's the point I'm driving at in this passage for us today is this. He says, every one of my days was written in your book before any of them came to pass. 
while I was being formed in the womb. My days were in your book. And what he's saying, in spite of the philosophical difficulties of working that out, trust me, I know it's, it's hard. What he's asking us to trust is this. God is all-powerful. He's the sovereign one of our lives. And that has implications for how we live our lives by faith, for example, meaning this. God is omnipotent, so I don't have to be in control. Because God is all-powerful, because he's literally ordered our days even when we were in the womb, I don't have to fake, really, being in control because that's exactly what our control is. Psalm 139, 14. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderful made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Are you resting in that, rejoicing in that? Are you living like I often do in fear, anxiety, anger, anxiousness, a lot of A's in there. (laughs) You know, when we are filled with anxiety, God's given us emotion and fear. That's a gift. Anger even is a gift. But when we live in over anger or over fear, over anxiety, what we're demonstrating is that we are believing that our circumstances in life are far more powerful than our sovereign God. Let me say that again, and I'll ask you if you agree. That when we are being ruled by our emotions, by fear, by anxiety, by anger, we are believing that the circumstances in our life have more power when we're ruled by fear than our God, who is sovereign over everything. We feign control. We we want to believe that if we just do the right things, that we can manage our life in such a way that we can have control. But the reality is there's only one who has control. I want to believe if I you know, eat right and work out, which I do some and not other times, but then I can manage my health and stay healthy all the time. But don't you know that your very life could be asked of you this very day? You can't control the number of your days. You cannot. Is it wise to eat well and to work out? Yes. But when we get so hyper intense about it and control it, what we're realizing is you can't really manage that. I want to believe that if I just, you know, save 10% and give 10% and live on 80% and do everything Dave Ramsey tells me to do, and I do try, stay out of debt, that I can manage my life financially in such a way that I can control it and have security. But I don't know if you've noticed, your financial security isn't completely within your control. You can't control your air conditioner. You can't control the roof on your house. You can't control car wrecks and all kinds of other things that may come your way, sicknesses, all kinds of things that may put a financial strain on your life. You're not in control. Then you have kids. And when they're babies and infants, infants, (laughs) infants, you really believe the lie that you can control this person. I will put you to bed right now, and especially if you read certain books from the 90s and like the early 2000s, like growing kids God's way opposed to growing kids the devil's way, I guess. But like we read those books, and it's like, I will control you. You're not in charge. We are. You're going to bed right now. We're going to do this. You're going to eat then. Da, da, da. We're going to schedule you out into the great details of your life. And we think, we feign this idea that I will be able to manage you and control you. Are we called to discipline our children? Yes, admonish them. Raise them up in the way they should go. Yes, yes, yes. But if you think you could control another human being, well, you're fooling yourself. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed, 
You can do your part, but they come out hardwired with a personality. They come out with a will. They come out with a perspective on life that may not be yours, and they quickly, independently begin to assert that will and that personality and that influence. You cannot control another human being, even if it's your own children. God has been gracious over the years to show me my control. I used to think I was really laid back. I remember in college once, kind of, acting like I'm Mr. Laidback guy one day. And then my friends all kind of looked at me and said, who are you talking about right now? And I'm like, me, I'm laid back. And they're like, Brownie, you're fooling yourself. You're the most intense person we know. This is ridiculous. Like, will you admit that you have control? You don't have to live this way, though, as we rest and learn to rest. And believe me, for people like me, this is hard. But giving up this sense and resting in the sovereignty of God is so helpful. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Now, David begins this psalm with a declaration. God has searched me, and God knows me. He knows everything about me, my rising, my going to bed, my taking a walk. He knows it all. But then he closes this psalm with a request, almost seeming like he's forgotten what he just said. Because he says, search me. You already said he has. He knows everything about you. He says, search me and know me that you may show me any grievous way in me that I may walk in the way everlasting. Basically, that's my summary. That's a terrifying question to ask God. First of all, I said, God already has searched me, already does know me. And, but in light of that reality, because you're omnipotent, om- omnipresent and omniscient, I'm going to ask you to do another layer of searching And this time I want you to search out not just knowing where I am, kind of this, you know, God GPS, but instead I want you to search me to see if there's any sin in my life in order that I may walk in the way everlasting. Now, David's obviously a good theologian. He knows that God is altogether righteous, altogether holy, altogether perfect. How can you ask an altogether righteous, holy God to search out your sin, to put the spotlight of his eyesight, his face, his visage on your sin? Why would you ever ask that? Well, you would only ask that of a person that you trust loves you, wouldn't you? Even then, it's creepy and hard. Pick out all my faults and show them. What he's saying, and search me and know me, see if there's a grievous way. What he's saying is, I already know that you know me. You know everything about me, the good and the evil and the sin and the grievousness. So I want you to figure, I want you to show me now. Are you tracking with me? What he's saying, and search me and know me and show me this, what he's saying is, I want you to tell me where I'm falling short, that I may then walk in the way that is everlasting. Would you show me, God? That is a daring prayer that I'm going to plead with all of us, myself included, to make today. To ask God to show us the ways in which we're not yet following in the way everlasting. Now, you have to, first of all, to ever ask anyone that, you have to know that they're committed to you and that they love you, or you would never, ever, ever ask somebody that. So let me talk to you about the good news, the gospel. Because of the gospel, we have a relationship with God that is such that you can do this. Because Jesus Christ, we we just confessed it from the New City Catechism, because he received the entire penalty for your sin and gladly did so, and you therefore, it said, imputed his righteousness to you, meaning he got what you deserved, 
I mean, have you thought about how crazy this is in the gospel? Jesus Christ, the only holy person that's ever walked the earth, got what you deserve, death, the cross, the Father's face turning away from him, the wrath of God on the cross. He got what you and I deserve, but here's the gospel. The transfer is this, then you and I get what he deserves. He gets what we deserve, we get what he deserves. That's not justice. You don't want justice from God. You get what you deserve. Instead, you get mercy, grace, and the gospel, the good news. He gets what we deserve, we get what he deserves, and therefore we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're now reckoned and considered righteous just as Abraham was by faith. That's the gospel. And so you can now, believe it or not, through Jesus Christ, say, search me, know me, and point out my sin, and it won't be in such a way that it's like, ah, I found something, and now you're in judgment. Why? Because it's already been judged. It's already been judged on the cross. It's already taken care of by the blood of Christ. You're already cleansed from it. So now you can ask God, would you search me and know me and point it out because you love me or committed to me and accepted me so that I may walk in the way everlasting. And what I've found in my life is this, that I can't grow, I really can't change until I get somebody else's perspective on me, because I think I know myself. Oh, I'm Mr. Laidback Guy. I need somebody else to say, you know what? I think you have a blind spot. <laughs> I think, you think this about your life, you think this about, you know, who you are, and so, but here's what's really going on. I can see it. And so I've found other people have a greater perspective on me than I often have on myself. I have with other people as well. I have, I have had good friends that I see into their life, Becky and me. And here's the point. God loves me and has a perfect knowledge of me, therefore I can mature and change. That's good. I can walk in the way everlasting. God loves me. He's not just omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. He's also our Father who loves us. He loves me and has perfect knowledge of me, therefore I can change because he can speak to me about what's lacking in order that I may walk in the way everlasting. After Becky and I have been married together for so long now, we have a perspective about one another that I don't even think the other has. Like, she knows me better than I know me. It's true. And she's utterly committed to me and loves me. And so she has an opportunity and a window and a voice in my life to say things to me that I might never understand about myself if she doesn't speak up. And I do to her as well. I recently, we were just recently had this conversation. In the midst of it, I said something along the lines to her, like, I need you to trust me and to listen here because it, it was like a heart issue and, and a way in which I felt like she needed some freedom. I'm not going to get into the details, but I just said, I need you to trust me and listen because I think I see this thing and the way it's controlling you and I want to speak into it the, and the good news of the gospel into it. And she, she did, of course, she, she listened. And, but it takes someone, you've got to know somebody loves you and is committed to you and then they can speak in from the outside and free you. Now, when you believe the gospel, you can do this. And until you, can't, until you actually do, you can't. But church, are you bold enough to say, search me, God, know me, and show me the stuff in my life, anything that's grievous, that grieves you, in order that I may walk in the way everlasting? And it may be a hard word. I mean, usually when people say, hey, there's something about you you don't know, 
Sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's not. Be prepared. It, it might be a hard word. It may be, you know what? Here's something you don't realize about yourself. You love, you love material stuff too much and it controls you. You're thinking your, your bank account is your security. You're thinking your stuff is your security. You're thinking your, whatever your, you know, I don't know what it is for you, but that may be a word God has for any of us Americans consumed by materialism. I mean, it's probably true of all of us. He, he may say, like, I think your kids are controlling you. Like, you've tried to control them, but in essence, they're controlling you and your worry and your fear and anxiety about them. You know, maybe you need more freedom in that. Maybe God's going to, I don't know what the Lord's going to say to you, but there are these common themes. He may say a hard word like, take up your cross and follow me, like he said to so many in the Gospels. Serve the poor, die to yourself. Are you open, though, to listening? Lord, search me, know me. And we already know that he has. So what David is saying, so that you may show me the way in which I may grow. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in our lives that need changing and change is so difficult. But Father, I pray for us that we may experience more and more freedom knowing that you love us. You're utterly committed to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe that to be true so that you may then come speak into our lives. Show us the ways in which we are grieving you and that you still love us, that we may walk in the way everlasting. I pray for boldness for each one of us that we may pray this prayer and ask you. I pray for boldness for each one of us that when we hear what you may say that we may be open to hearing it. Put down our defenses and listen. I pray that no matter what it is, you may tell us to forgive someone that we don't want to forgive. You may tell us to love someone that's unlovely and difficult to love. You may speak anything to us, Lord, we're open. Let us hear your voice. We ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.